Hello, Woodland Hills. Uh, before I get going, I'd like to just lead us in a prayer. Uh, use our kingdom authority on behalf of some areas of the world that could use it right now, okay? So just uh, pray with me here. Father, uh, we stand in the gap as your people who are given a unique authority to change what comes to pass through the power of prayer. And we use that authority right now on behalf of the people of uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. And we pray that you pour out your shalom over that city. We pray, God, for the hearts of the white supremacists, each one of whom you died for. We pray, God, that you'll be working in their hearts to bring a healing to whatever wound is there that causes them to embrace this false and hateful identity and ideology. Be working in their hearts to free them from that. We pray, God, that you be working in the, the hearts of those who are protesting against them and that uh, you would help them, God, to refrain from that fallen inclination to resort to violence, which never helps. And we just pray peace uh, over that whole city. And God, free it from its racism and God, free America from its racism. This deplorable uh, mindset that has so characterized us in the past and it seems increasingly so in the present. Free us from that. And help us as the people of God model what it is to be one new humanity and to put on display the beauty of all that you've created in Christ Jesus. And Father, we pray for shalom in America and North Korea. Uh, Lord, right now the time where there's so much... Saber rattling going on, so much infantile chest pounding going on, so much uh, bellicose boasting going on. Uh, God, will you humble the leaders of these nations? And, and as we sang earlier, God, be a champion of heaven that, that uh, shows them the way of peace. Show them the way of peace, Lord. There's so many lives in the balance here. This hostile rhetoric is leading in a dangerous direction. And we got to just pray that war would be averted Pour out your shalom. Pour out your shalom. And God, at a time when, when many are understandably growing anxious, um, uh, God, our eyes are on you. We fix our eyes upon you, and we stand on the promise that you will give perfect peace to all whose eyes are fixed on you. Uh, our hope is, is in you alone. It's in your kingdom. Praise God, the kingdom that will never end and is never threatened by missiles. And though the world may burn away, God, our, our, we stand fast in our confidence in you. Uh, and in your ultimate victory over evil. And now, Lord, as we turn to your word, we pray you infuse it with your authority to change us, to inform us, and to transform us. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Well, this message is being entitled Revolting Beauty. Uh, turns out that we actually did a series called that uh, some years ago. Uh, but I'm sticking with the title anyways because it fits so well, as I hope you'll agree, uh, by the time this message is done. Revolting beauty. And here's the thing. We at Woodland Hills believe that uh, God is indiscriminately loving and is opposed to all violence. And we believe that Jesus calls us to reflect that character by being indiscriminately loving and refraining from all violence. The sad truth is that the majority of Christians, at least since the 4th century up to the present, have not wanted that to be true. The vast majority, past and present, have 
uh, wanted to be able to hate their enemies when they feel justified doing so and to engage in violence when they feel justified doing so, which is what pagans have been doing throughout history. But see, with that mindset then, what we find is that there's been some of the some ingenious minds have gone to incredible lengths to try to find in the ministry of Jesus some justification for violence, that there's exceptions to his command to love unconditionally and to refrain from violence. And what we've been doing in this series, turning over tables, uh, what we've been doing is, is looking at the main passages that these people appeal to, to argue that, as a matter of fact, these passages don't condone violence. And that Jesus never compromised or qualified his teaching on loving enemies and refraining from violence. This morning I want to look at Matthew 15, which is one of the main passages that have been appealed to uh, to justify violence. And I'll argue that uh, the passage doesn't uh, imply anything of the sort. I, I want to say, if, um, if you're new here to Woodland Hills Church in the last couple of weeks or so, you should know that we don't aim our messages at just trying to make people feel warm and fuzzy and to reconfirm what we already think. We put a premium on authenticity, and sometimes as we authentically wrestle with Scripture, it leads us in some surprising and sometimes non-traditional directions, and that sometimes makes people feel a little uncomfortable. Um, and it may, this message may make you feel that way, if you've never heard anything like this before. Uh, and I just encourage you to hang in there and to keep an open mind. And uh, I can, I think, promise you that it will be worth it. And even if you don't end up agreeing with me, um, you'll have some things to think about, okay? You'll get your mind thinking. That's always a good thing. Okay, so uh, we're dealing with Matthew chapter 15. Let's read this. It says, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem, which is where the temple is located. And that'll become important a little bit later on. And they said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, that's not in Scripture. That's just a tradition that they, they, they came up with. And Jesus replied, why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father and mother is quote-unquote devoted to God, they are, to honor their, they are not to honor their father and mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. And then Jesus is going to respond to their charge about the disciples not washing their hands. And Jesus said, listen, crowd, and understand. What goes into the mouth doesn't defile a person, but it's what comes out of the mouth, that's what defiles them. And then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? And Jesus said, You think? All right. So there's actually two questions I want to address here this morning. The first one is, does Jesus in this passage condone violence? He quotes Leviticus chapter 20, verse 9, which says that if a child curses their mother or father, they're to be put to death. Is Jesus therefore endorsing that violent command? Uh, is that correct? The second question I'm going to ask is this. I'll argue that Jesus is not endorsing this command, which leads to the question, how can Jesus not endorse something that is found in Scripture when he holds that all Scripture is inspired by God? How can he repudiate material that he, it's very clear from the Gospels, he regards the whole Old Testament as divinely inspired, so how can he not agree with it? That'll be the second question. So, first question. Many appeal, they have throughout history, appeal to Matthew 15, um, 
to argue that there are exceptions to Jesus' command to refrain from violence, and one exception would be uh, if a child curses their parents, the parents are to put that child to death. Uh, is, that, is, is that a valid argument? I first want us to notice that there's something funky about the argument. What's funky is this. Um, if a Christian is going to appeal to Matthew 15 to argue that Jesus condones violence in some cases because he condones the execution of children, if a Christian is going to argue that way, doesn't the Christian therefore have to condone the killing of children? If you confess Jesus Christ as Lord, that presumably means, at the very least, that you approve of what he approves of and you disapprove of what he disapproves of. So if you're going to appeal to this passage to say that Jesus approves of, of uh, the execution of children in order to feel justified engaging in violence, well then, don't you have to, therefore, agree that it's okay to condone the execution of children? On the other hand, if you don't agree, if you don't condone the execution of children, and I'm really hoping that all the folks in the auditorium here and on podcast don't condone that, if you don't condone that and you're a follower of Jesus, then seems to me that you can't believe that Jesus condoned it. And therefore, you can't appeal to this passage to argue that Jesus is uh, condoning violence. Uh, whatever the passage means, it can't mean that. In other words, the only way that you can appeal to this passage to uh, argue that Jesus condoned violence is to also, therefore, condone the execution of children. The vast majority of people who appeal to this passage to say that Jesus condones violence don't condone the execution of children. So there's a little duplicity going on here. Follow the, follow the logic. So for, I, I think, most of us, I hope all of us, uh, that should settle the argument right there. Even if we don't know quite what Jesus was getting at, he can't be condoning the execution of children unless we are prepared to do the same. But as a matter of fact, I submit to you that this passage does not suggest that Jesus is actually condoning the execution of children. Now, it's true that Jesus says God commanded it. In fact, it's true that Jesus regards the whole Old Testament as, in, in the words of Paul in 2 Timothy, God, God breathed. It's inspired. He considers that to be, all that. And so we should too. But that doesn't mean, and here's the mistake a lot of people make, that doesn't mean that Jesus condones it all. Because as a matter of fact, Jesus repudiates aspects of the Old Testament, though he considers it all to be God-breathed. So for example, in the passage we just read here, uh, he responds to the uh, Pharisees' charge against the disciples by saying, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Well, in saying that, Jesus just repudiated all the dietary law of the Old Testament. You find it all over the place, they make this distinction between what's clean and you can eat it because it doesn't defile you. And food that's unclean, which you can't eat because it will defile you. Pork, for example. If you eat that, it defiles you. Um, well, if Jesus is right, those passages can't be right. So Jesus is here not condoning that. He's repudiating it, even though he regards the whole Bible as being inspired. Another example, probably the most famous example, is, is this. Three times in the Old Testament, we find this, this law, uh, you shall take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life, a limb for a limb. But Jesus comes along in Matthew 5 and he says, well, scrap that. Uh, I'm telling you, never retaliate. Don't try to get even. Rather, turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Matthew 5.45. So think about this. To be a follower of Jesus and to be considered by his criteria a child of the Father in heaven, we have to be willing to disobey the three commands in the Old Testament to take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Yes, Jesus believes it's all inspired, but that doesn't mean he condones it all. Final example is particularly relevant to the passage we're dealing with. 
You recall that in, in John 8, uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they grab this, they find this couple committing adultery. So they bring the woman to Jesus to see what he's going to do with her. Notice they didn't bring the man. Why? Because they're a bunch of chauvinistic pigs, but that's a different sermon. So they bring this woman to Jesus. Now the thing is, the law requires that adulterers be stoned to death. And so they bring this woman to Jesus. What are you going to do? And Jesus, in effect, does this. He, he says, yes, okay, the law specifies that we're supposed to stone this woman to death. So tell you what, whoever has never broken the law, you cast the first stone. Of course, none of them are sinless, and so no one can cast any stones, and so the woman is set free. Now think about the implications of this. By Jesus' own teaching, it means that the only person who would be justified carrying out capital punishment would be a sinless person. And since there are no sinless people, it means that carrying out capital punishment is never justified. And Jesus just, in that one move, subverted all of the commands in the Old Testament that require people to be put to death. Uh, in Jesus' teaching, no one should ever be put to death for any reason because there's no sinless people in, uh, on the planet. So yes, Jesus considers all of the Old Testament to be divinely inspired, but it doesn't mean that he condones all of it. And if, if, if only a sinless person could put someone to death, then clearly no one could put a child to death for cursing a parent. So clearly Jesus can't be condoning the execution of children in Matthew 15. So what is going on in this, uh, this passage? Why does Jesus cite Leviticus 20, verse 9? Let's step back and take a look at what's going on. The disciples come and they say, you, are, you're, you and your disciples are hypocrites because you're not following the tradition of the elders. As Jesus always does, he responds by turning the tables. That's the title of the series we're in. He turns the tables on them and he says, you're going to really charge us with hypocrisy. Well, look at um, You are the ones who are being hypocritical here. You subvert the word of God. You subvert the law, which you claim to be experts in, and you claim to believe. Uh, but you subvert it by your traditions. Now, the tradition he's appealing to is called the law of Corban. Corban is the Aramaic word for uh, vow or offering. And, 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 and he, here's how it worked. In ancient Jewish culture, uh, they understood the commandment to honor your father and mother to require... Uh, children to support their parents financially when they weren't able, when the parents were no longer able to do so on, the, on their own. Okay, that's just what it meant to honor your father and mother. Uh, that's a very important law at the time because uh, at this stage in history, there are no 401k plans, no Social Security, no Medicare, no Medicaid, nothing of the sort. So if you can't support yourself and no one else is willing to support you, you die. Well, sometimes kids had falling out with parents and they didn't want to support their parents. They didn't like their parents. And so some Jewish leaders at some point came up with this quite clever law that became a tradition, the law of Corban. And this law said, if you dedicate a certain amount of money to the temple, uh, then you're not required to support your parents with that money. It's like you don't own it. It's like a tax loophole. It's, it's not there. So you can tell your parents, oh, sorry, we don't have any money to support you with, even though you have a lot of money, but you've devoted it to God. Now, the nice thing about this law, the convenient thing about this law, the clever loophole that it was, is that you only gave that money when you died. Okay, you went to the temple when you died, and you could revise your vow as time went on. If you happen to need some funds, you could dip into that, and you just kind of revise your, your, your vow. So this law put more money into the temple leadership. It gave, put more money to the, to the kids who didn't like their parents, and it empowered them to stick it to the parents, even though it might, might mean that the parents are going to die. 
So the purpose, what Jesus is getting at here, he's not condoning the law about uh, executing children here. He's exposing the gross hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Uh, you say that you believe in this law. You say that you believe the law that anyone who curses parents must die. And yet, you do the opposite. You empower people to curse their parents, even though it means that the parents might die. And so by your own law, uh, you guys are guilty of a capital offense here. Jesus is appealing to Leviticus 20, not because he's condoning it, but because they condone it and they don't live by it. And so they stand charged under it. It's a little bit like what I did one, several times when I was a young Christian. I, I was feisty and I like to debate people. And so you know, Jehovah Witnesses would come around or Mormons would come around and I'd like, oh, good. You know? and, and, and I just love to get in these debates with these folks. And so there's this one Mormon group, uh, two, two folks, See, if, if you show any interest, they'll come back again, and it's like Velcro. They're just, they're on you. So I, I would show some interest, and i ask questions, and so they would come back over, over again. The last conversation I had with them went something like this. They had told me that if I read the Book of Mormon, God will show me that it is the Word of God. And they gave me a, a copy of it, so I read it. And it didn't, I didn't, God didn't show me that it was the Word of God. But I did learn some interesting things about the Book of Mormon. One of them, and I brought this to them, is, there's a passage, I don't remember where it is, but, but it says that, that um, uh, some people, a particular group of people were, and I remember the phrase, delightfully white. Uh, and, but they were cursed because they weren't honoring a prophet, as I recall, and so they became black. Isn't that special? And, and then there's a, a group of, of, of Native uh, Americans who uh, converted to Mormonism, and they went from being brown to being delightfully white. Sorry, I, I, I said to these guys, no, you, you, you believe this whole book, right? And, and you preach this whole book. And absolutely, we believe it. You know, it's the word of God. I said, so do you go around telling black people that they're cursed? Or that if they convert to Mormonism, they'll become white? Because that's what your book says. And they were like, uh, well, uh, well, it doesn't really mean that. Well, it doesn't mean? Well, it doesn't mean that. It means something else. They didn't have an answer for it. So I'm quoting the Book of Mormon, not because I believe the Book of Mormon, but because they believe the Book of Mormon, and they're not living consistent with it. That's what Jesus is doing with Leviticus chapter 20. So I hope you can see that this passage does not constitute uh, a qualification or a compromising of Jesus' command to never resort to violence. So let's go to the second question. How can Jesus repudiate material that he considers to be divinely inspired? How does that work? Especially because Jesus says it's all supposed to point to him. How can it all point to him when he doesn't even agree with all of it? Can't be an interesting question. Now, I can be kind of brief on this because I preached uh, a three-part uh, sermon series on it back in April, as some of you may recall. Um, I also re recently came out with a book on this, Crucifixion of the Warrior God, a big academic book. Some of you have been reading it. And um, uh, the popular version of this is called Cross Vision, and it came out on Friday, and we'll have copies of it here next week. And so for non-academics, that's, yeah, thank God, some, finally something you can understand. Uh, also, I, I want to tell you uh, that we'll be having a conference on this topic here at the church, um, September 21st through 23rd. And we're going to explore kind of what the implications this has for teaching children how to read the Bible and, and for doing social justice and all sorts of other things like that. And so you can find out more about that at renew.org. Okay, that's just R-E-K-N-E-W. It's a ministry I head up, .org. And uh, you can register for the conference there. If you're interested in this topic, and I don't know who couldn't be, uh, come and check this out. But in a nutshell, just by way of review, I, I, I propose this, that... If all scripture is supposed to point to Jesus and, and ultimately point to his sacrifice on the cross, Luke 24 is all about this, how the son of, son of man must suffer and die. 
if all scripture is ultimately pointing to the revelation of God's perfect love on the cross, then I submit that we should read the whole Bible through the lens of the cross. We should read the whole Bible with the understanding that it's all supposed to point to the cross and looking for ways in which it does that. And when we read the Bible that way, it seems to me that we can see that God, what God did on Calvary, he's been doing throughout history. What God does on Calvary is God stoops an infinite distance to become a human and then become our sin and to become our curse. And in doing that, he takes on an appearance, an ugly appearance that, that mirrors the ugliness of the sin that he's bearing. He looks, God looks like a God-forsaken, guilty, tortured criminal. And it's horrific. It's revolting. But, and, 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 and the revolting appearance of the cross isn't what reveals God to us. If you look at it just from the natural point of view, all you see is a crucified criminal. The, the ugly surface isn't what reveals God to us. What reveals God to us is when we, by faith, look through that revolting surface to see the beauty of a God who so loves us that he's willing to step into that revolting ugliness. So the cross is revoltingly beautiful and beautifully revolting. Revolting beauty. And if the cross reveals what God is truly like, it reveals what God's always been like, including what God was like when he inspired Scripture. And since all Scripture is supposed to be ultimately be pointing to this revoltingly beautiful cross, it seems to me that, that, that we should read it knowing that God will sometimes reveal his beauty by taking on the ugliness of his people. That God will stoop to enter into where they're at. And the, the ugliness doesn't reveal what God's like. The ugliness rather mirrors the sin of the people that he's working with, the sin that he's bearing. But what reveals God is when, because we know what God's really like because of Calvary, we can look at these ugly pictures of God, these revolting pictures of God. Some of the portraits of God in the Old Testament are revolting, commanding genocide, kill all the babies, execute the children, slaughter the armies, and so on and so on. But we can look at these, and we can look past the ugliness to see that God was willing to step into that. It, these, these pictures become testaments of just how low God was willing to go to stay in covenantal solidarity with his people, to continue to influence them in the direction of truth. Even though they, they had these fallen, sinful culturally conditioned uh, conceptions of him. I, I received a letter a couple, uh, about a week and a half ago, an email, uh, that I think beautifully illustrates what, what, what God's doing here. Um, it's, a, it's, it's by a couple who is part of a team at this Christian, long-term Christian foster home. And they take in a lot of children, some of whom are, have been severely abused. And they have an incarnational, beautifully incarnational model of ministry where they're committed to meeting the kids where they're at, and loving them into wholeness, however long that may take, and doing whatever it takes to, to, to carry that out. This couple tells me that they received a couple, a, a, a 10-year-old precious girl. I'll call her Rosie. That's not a real name, but I'll just call her Rosie. And um, the first night that she stayed at this foster home, uh, when the, when the care, caretaker came uh, the next morning to wake her up, they discovered the room was covered in... Rosie's feces. She'd smeared her poop over the, on the walls of this bedroom. Now, I think probably most parents, most caregivers would have been angry at that. They would have scolded Rosie, uh, said this is totally inappropriate behavior. They may have, would have interpreted it as rebellion or, or, and punished her or whatever. But because of their incarnational philosophy, this team came to this conclusion that if Rosie did this, she must feel some need to do this. There's a reason why she did this. And so they didn't get angry. They got compassionate. And they told Rosie, uh, he, he, here's a part of your wall where you, we'll let you do this. 
And uh, um, uh, you smear that on there as much as you need to, and in the morning we'll come and we'll clean it up for you. See, they understood that if, if, if Rosie's ever going to get healthy enough to be let go of this behavior, she needs to experience love in the midst of the behavior. Uh, it's like I always say to people that until you can be convinced of, that God loves you perfectly in the midst of all your poop smearing, in the midst of all whatever mess you've made of your life, until you know that God's love for you is perfect in the midst of all your crap, you'll never get out of your crap in a healthy way. It's the love of God that brings about transformation in our life. And, and, and so they loved Rosie as she was, as she continued to, to smear poop on the wall. In time, the, the trust level between Rosie and the staff was great enough so that she shared why she did this. It turns out that Rosie, um, beginning at about the age four, uh, her father would get himself drunk and in the middle of the night come into her room and sexually molest her. And in the course, this went on, on for however long, but at one point while this was happening, Rosie accidentally defecated. And it so grossed the father out, he left the room. And so little Rosie discovered a way to keep her father off of her. And so at night she would smear her poop on the wall and cause it to stink to high heaven so that the father wouldn't come in the room. And, and see, to ordinary people, the smell of, of poop is, is revolting. It, it's, it's unpleasant. It's disgusting. But for, for, for Rosie, uh, that smell, the smell of her poop, was, that's, what, that's what protection smelled like. That, that was the smell of safety. And without that smell, she couldn't go to sleep. Now, if I understand the story right, when the team learned this, um, they said, Rosie... That's smart. That, that was smart. And, and we'd be honored to help you do that. And, and so a, t- a member of the team each night would get, put on latex gloves and get on their hands and knees and help her smear that poop on the wall. And see, in doing that, they were bearing her wound. They were entering into the mess with her. And in doing that, they were expressing their love for her as she is and winning her profound her, her trust. So eventually got to the point where Rosie no longer needed to do that. She trusted that these people love her and are not going to sexually molest her. I think that is a beautiful illustration of what God does for us on Calvary and what God's been doing throughout history. God is a God who's always been willing uh, to enter into our poop smearing. Uh, God's the kind of God who's always been willing to go as far, to step as far as he has to step to enter into exactly where we're at. This is what he does on the cross, and this is what he's been doing throughout, throughout history. He enters into solidarity with our sinful poop smearing and our wounded poop smearing. And that's why God takes on this ugly appearance. He appears in his guilty, revolting way on the cross. That's why he appears in guilty, revolting ways in some of the portraits of God throughout the Bible. It's not because he is ugly. He's actually beautiful. But he enters into, he enters into the ugliness of the people that he's working with and, and, and bears their sin and therefore takes on an appearance that reflects the ugliness of that sin. He's, he's a God who, who's, out of his love, he enters into revolting beauty. The revolting reflects the character of the people he's working with. But what's beautiful is that God's willing to step into that. Uh, but I want us to see this. We'll only, you'll only see these ugly portraits of God as revoltingly beautiful if you fully trust that God is as beautiful as he's revealed to be on Calvary. 
It, 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 without that trust, all you'll see is the revolting. You won't see the beauty. Imagine this. Imagine you don't know this, this, this Christian couple or you don't know the, the, the philosophy of this, this team at this, this foster home. And so you, you come to this, this foster home and you walk in and you see a worker on their knees with a little kid helping the kid put poop on the wall. What would you think? Not knowing anything else about them. You, 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 this would be revolting. It's disgusting. You'd probably think, this is a sick home. These are sick words. They're, they're twisted. You maybe think that they're abusing this child or punishing her or something like that. You'd probably call, you know, protective services to come and, get, and rescue this kid. But it, when you know what else is going on, when you know the rest of the story, when, when you know the character of these people and why they're doing this, well now, yes, it's still a revolting sight, but it's revoltingly beautiful. Because... These workers were willing to enter into this revolting scene and participate in this revolting behavior. And in doing that, they're expressing God's love. It's the same thing with us. It, if we don't trust that God really is as beautiful as he says he is, if you see me, you see the Father. If we don't trust that he's as beautiful as he's revealed to be on the cross, well then when you come to these revolting scenes in the Old Testament, all you'll see is the revolting stuff. All you'll see is a God who commands genocide and, and slaughters armies and commands the execution of children. Because you're not trusting the real character that he reveals on the cross. But when we fully trust that God is that beautiful, well, now we can look at these revolting scenes and they become revoltingly beautiful. The revolting nature of the picture, the surface appearance of the picture, doesn't reflect what God's like. It rather reflects what his people are like and how they think about God. But what's beautiful is that God, God's willing to step into that and bear that sin and take on that appearance just like he does on the cross. And so it's like the ancient Hebrews, like everybody else in the ancient Near East, they, they saw God, at least to a large degree, as a violent warrior deity. That's how everyone conceived of the gods. And like everybody else in the ancient Near East, they thought they were complimenting God when they ascribed their own violence to God. They knew that they did the violence, but they, they didn't want to take credit for it. They, they gave that credit to God. Um, it's what everyone does there. And see, God... He always reveals as much of his true self as, as his people can handle. But because he's a God of love, he'll never coerce people into having right views about him. He never lobotomizes people's brains so that they see him in true ways. No, he works by means of loving influence. And so he reveals as much of his true self as he can. But there comes a point, because he won't coerce, coerce people, there comes a point where now he has to accept them as they are and enter into their poop smearing. And, and, and so it says, though God says to them, look, if you need to see me, as a warrior deity to feel secure. If, that's, if you need to smell that poop in order to feel safe, I'm going to let you do it. In fact, he gets on his hands and knees and helps him smear that poop. That's what's going on, in my view, uh, with these pictures in the Old Testament. Or take the example of, uh, of the, the portrait of God commanding the execution of children for various reasons. And there's several texts that, that, that command that. Well, everybody in the ancient Near East, in their laws, they had uh, provisions whereby you could execute your children under certain circumstances. In fact, they had laws where you sac you're required to sacrifice one of your children. Uh, Yahweh and, and, and the children of Israel are always influenced by their surrounding culture. Now, Yahweh, if there's loving influence, he's trying to move people away from that as much as possible. And it's, it's clear that, for the most part, he was able to free them from this false idea that he actually requ that would require uh, child sacrifices. Though you find echoes of that in the Old Testament. But when it came to the execution of children, they weren't ready to let that go. And so even though it broke God's heart, God gets on his hands and knees, puts on his latex gloves, and helps him smear poop. Um, but see, when we, when we, have this, when we read these, these portraits through the lens of the cross, what we can see is that, that God's doing throughout history what, he is always, what he's done on the cross. Uh, 
Every, in this light, every ugly portrait of God in the Old Testament becomes a testimony to the beauty of God, the beauty of the stooping God. Every portrait of God becomes revoltingly beautiful for just the same reason that the cross is revoltingly beautiful. Every, every portrait of God, every violent portrait of God, immoral portrait of God that you find in the Old Testament, uh, it becomes a, like a literary crucifix, a revoltingly beautiful literary crucifix that in its own way points to the, the, the historical crucifixion, the revoltingly beautiful historical crucifixion. But it does that only if we're interpreting these portraits with the same faith that we use to see the cross as the full revelation of God. That faith that looks through the surface to see what else is going on as we trust in the, in, in, in the true character of God. And that, folks, is how I submit all these, these portraits of God point to the self-sacrificial love of God that's revealed on Calvary. Um, and that's why, that's why Jesus could, even though he believes it's all divinely inspired, he, he could repudiate aspects of it. What is, it's, it's like what he's repudiating is, is the, the, the poop that God is, is stooping to wear, right? the sin that God is stooping to bear. What he's repudiating is the revolting, ugly sin that God's bearing. But he's doing that while he's affirming the beauty of the God who does that. He refutes the, the, the poop that God stoops to wear while affirming the beauty of the God who stoops to wear it. It's all inspired. doesn't mean that he condoned it all. So I hope you can see that Jesus was not condoning the execution of children, um, and he never qualified or compromised uh, his teaching that uh, we are to be indiscriminately loving and to refrain from violence. But as we said in the first two messages of the series, we don't want the series to just be about you talking about the wrong-headed ways that people have tried to justify their violence. We don't want this just to be an academic exercise. We want to take this as an opportunity to examine our own lives and look at ways that we justify violence and look at the causes of, of some of the violence that's in our own lives. Because violence isn't first and foremost about what we do with our behavior. It's about how we think and about how we feel uh, and about how we speak. Okay, so it, and the goal is to, is to purge our lives of all of that so that we can, in fact, be people who are indiscriminately loving and who refrain from violence in thought, word, and deed. The thing is that, like Rosie, um, uh, we all have wounds that lead us to poop smearing. Behind all poop smearing are, are wounds. It comes out of our woundedness. Whenever there's a soul wound, to, to the degree that we have soul wounds that we carry around, it's impossible to live in the love that, that, that Christ loved us with. Uh, and by poop smearing, I mean the hostile, aggressive, ungodly, thoughts and feelings and attitudes and, and, and words and sometimes actions that we engage in. They're all motivated by some kind of woundedness. Uh, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what that means is then that, that God is still willing and desirous to enter into our crap. He still wa he wants us to invite him in on those wounded spots, those dark spots, those sinful spots, those fallen spots. Because it's by him loving us as we are that he transforms us into what he knows we can be. And if we are, in principle, already are because of the cross. He wants to transform us by that love. So I, I, I want to lead us in an exercise here that is just meant to illustrate how we can search our souls and how we can ask the, the Spirit of God to help search our hearts, to locate the wounded areas of our life and receive healing for that so now we can let go of all, everything in our thoughts and words and deeds that's inconsistent with the, 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 the love of God and that leads us to have aggressive, violent uh, thoughts and attitudes. Um, 
Uh, here's the thing. We, are, we all have, at the core of our being, some core needs. Uh, it's what I refer to as life. We're thirsty for life. We're created with this hunger because it's, that's our homing device that leads us to God because only God can ultimately fill this. But that life consists of core, core needs like this. We all need to feel worth. In fact, we all need to feel unsurpassable worth. We're created with that. Uh, we all need to feel like we've got a purpose, like there's some significance in our life. Uh, we all need to feel like we belong. So you get, you get past our poop smearing and, and the vile stuff in our life, and you'll find there, the, the, these core values are there, and it, it's driving us. We all need to have a, a sense of justice, like we're being treated fairly. We all need to have a sense of freedom, like we're real people. We're not just uh, extensions of someone else's wishes and will. We all need to have a sense of security, that these things ca- can't be taken away from us. And what I want to do now is, is, is take th- the first three of these, We'll deal with the next three next week. But take the first three of these and just kind of lead us in this reflection. What kind of things happen when this core value is not met or is, is assaulted? And as we go through this, I want you to be thinking about, uh, do you identify with any of this? And think about maybe a particular time where, or particular situations where you feel this way. All right, so for example, let's start with uh, uh, worth. When our sense of our core need for worth is not met or is, is assaulted, will you feel worthless? Ever felt worthless or invalid? Or you feel ashamed, exposed, you feel defective, you feel unlovable, inferior, invisible? Can you relate to that? I, I, I've shared a number of times here through the years about how this was one of the main things that I experienced growing up. Uh, for a variety of reasons, I just never felt like I rated very high on the worth-o-meter. And I felt invisible. I felt inferior. I felt, felt ashamed. Uh, and it led to, I can look back on this and see, uh, so much of the behavior that I got involved in, so much of the sin in my life, so much of the aggression in my life, I was getting in fights all the time, so much of the attitude and anger I had towards authorities. And, uh, it, it comes out of this woundedness. Can you relate to it? Think of an episode where you felt this way. And so what we want to do is... All of uh, these, the, the woundedness are contained in memories, and we want to get into those memories, re-experience them, and then invite Jesus in on them. So he cannot begin to, he doesn't change the past, but he changes the meaning of the past in beautiful ways. We also all have a longing for a purpose, to feel like our life counts, that we're significant, that we matter. And when that, when that, th- that need, that core need, is not met or is assaulted, well, we feel incompetent, we feel weak, we feel criticized, like a failure, inadequate unimportant, insignificant. I feel like a nobody. Can you relate to that? What, what are circumstances where that gets triggered in you? And, and can you trace that back to times? Think about specific episodes where you felt this way. And then invite Jesus in on that woundedness. Because to the degree that you have this, it will, it will cause poop smearing. It will cause inappropriate behavior. You, to the degree that we're walking around with this wound, we can't live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. And then freedom. We all have this need to be genuine people. That's extension of somebody else. And when that need, that core need, is not met or is assaulted, because you parents are over-controlling or whatever, well, you feel manipulated and intimidated Helpless, deprived, controlled, smothered, powerless. And to the degree that we walk around with that soul wound, all it takes is the right circumstance or the right person or the right thing said or whatever to trigger that, and we have those feelings all over again, and it's impossible to live in love and to have purge our mind and heart from all violence when we're walking around with that woundedness. 
Can you identify with that? And what are some specific episodes maybe that you've gone through where you experienced that? Could be something recent, could be something long ago. And so I, I, I want to give us this assignment. You have in your bulletins a, a sheet that just kind of replicates all of this. And I'd like you to, to, in prayer, reflect on this. And ask God to help you search your heart and to get honest. And, and see what the Holy Spirit brings to your remembrance. Uh, where, when did you learn that you were worthless? When did you learn that, that you, you're not a real person, that you're just there to be an extension of other people? When did you learn that, that, uh, you, that, that, that you don't have any significance, that, that you're invisible? And invite Jesus in on that memory. And offer up your imagination to the Holy Spirit who can do beautiful things as, as, as he, 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 he heals us of these wounds and shows us his love. All, in all this, what we're doing, folks, is we're identifying the revolting aspects of our life to invite Jesus to show us his beauty and, and, and put on display uh, his healing power to free us from that. It's all about this final word. We want to invite God in on our poop to love us out of our poop. Amen? Would you stand? I want to ask the prayer teams to come up here and, and uh, uh, be by the stairs. If you're here this morning and have any need that could use prayer, come up here and pray with these folks. They'd love to minister to you. Uh, if you're here this morning and you're not a surrendered follower of Jesus, but there's something that's working in your heart or mind saying, hey, you really should check that out, I'd like to invite you to come up here and talk to these folks, and they'd love to explain to you uh, what, what it is to begin to embark on this beautiful relationship with this re revoltingly beautiful God that we worship. Amen? So we leave here. Can we do it as a people who are committed to surrendering to God all of our crap, inviting him in on it, and being transformed by his love into his own image. If you agree with that, say amen and go out and love your neighbors. Amen. God bless you guys. See you next week. See you Wednesday. My band's playing, by the way. Andy Wise is going to be here on Wednesday, so you want to be here. You don't want to miss that.